Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship <clears throat> and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps the God <clears throat> will spare us the thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring the, ships back to to bring the ship back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. <clears throat> All right, what are your thoughts when you hear Jonah? <coughs> Excuse me. Anyone? <laughs> yes. Whatever made him think he could run away from the Lord. <laughs> Rich asked, whatever made him think he could run away from the Lord? Good question. <clears throat> yes. It's interesting that they felt like they could approach Yahweh. Yes. Even though it was not their God. Yes. And that they, they had this understanding that like they could have a, a simple relationship. Yes. Right. You don't see that often in the, the scriptures. That's right. Something that people would have thought. 
That's right. Mandy said she thought it was interesting that the sailors thought they could approach Yahweh. That was not the normal mode of, of, of operating. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, Heidi says it makes you wonder, did um, Jonah think that God just didn't care enough about him if he ran away? Um, that's, a, that's a good point. Yes? Jonah always struck me as a little whiny and petulant. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just, I don't want to go. Right, right. I was just about to say, that's kind of how he acts in the Jonah movie. Speaking of, we're going to watch the Jonah movie as a congregation a couple Sunday nights from now. So for those of you that not had the joy to see that, we want you to be here. For those of you that have seen it ad nauseum, come watch it with us because you've never done that before. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. Uh, and so, like, I think his motivation here is more like a, a these people were not Jewish. They weren't his people. There's a little bit of prejudice, not a little bit, a lot of bit of prejudice in this story. Who else? Yes. You got it. Okay. Yeah. So God essentially saves Jonah from drowning at the end. Anyone? Yes. Wow, yeah. Sue and Lewis have actually been in Joppa, and it's a very beautiful place. Wow, that's awesome. All right, well, today we're only going to get through verse 6 of chapter 1 because we have a lot of background and context and historical uh, context that we need to work through today. So, uh, so just so you know, we're only getting through verse 6. But first, I want us to look at something fun, as if we hadn't had enough fun already. So I have some slides this morning. I was looking for some artwork through history of how Jonah and the whale have been depicted. So I found this wonderful website that has some pithy comments underneath each of these artwork. And I couldn't have said it better myself, so I'm just going to read what they have to say. These are not my words, but I want you to listen to what these, whoever these people are on this website has to say about Jonah and the whale from 1621. <clears throat> this attention to detail is evident in this painting, depicting the moment when the whale vomits forth a dramatically airborne, twisting and extremely jacked Jonah. 
Like many of us in quarantine, Jonah clearly devoted all of his indoor time to working out. He did not skip leg day, nor ab day, nor arm day, nor foot day, whilst in the belly of the whale. Just look at the wide, slightly traumatized eye of the fish, who has evidently viewed Jonah's OnlyFans account. He's seen some things. And for a fee, you can see them too. Slide two. Jonah thrown into the well, 1582. They didn't really have any clever commentary on this one. Um, I, I, so yeah, that one's kind of interesting too as well. Does anybody see something in there that speaks to them? Yeah. Who? Oh, Mandy says the whale looks like Falcor from, from the never-ending story. Oh, well, how about that? Anyone else? Next slide. Jonah spat up by the whale. Interesting, right? Thank you. It's weird, right? Yeah. That's just what Mickey said. <laughs> yes. Very good point. All right, next slide. The prophet Jonah from 1180. So this is what they have to say. Like many of us, Jonah spent the first part of the COVID quarantine worried about sourcing... Wait a minute. Nope, that's not the right one. Hold on. Go to the next slide. No. Oh, shoot. I didn't include that one. That one was so funny. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Um, anyway, I can't say, I'll try to do that next week because it's hilarious. This one is, this is what they have to say about this one. We know that, in fact, this is the prophet Jonah emerging from the well at Nineveh, not someone with Polly D's Jersey Shore era tape up doing a bad rendition of the Megan Thee Stallion featuring Beyonce Savage TikTok dance. But I also wonder why the fish is working that smoky eye and fake lashes so hard and why Jonah is blushing. And I have reached the inevitable conclusion that we have discovered the first historical illustration of interspecies catfishing. I'm disturbed, you're disturbed. Cool, thank you. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so obviously the genre for Jonah is not historical. That's not the point. The point is not to be this actually happened, although I'm 99.99% sure that's the only way I've ever been taught Jonah, was that this actually happened. It's not. It's meant to be satire. It's meant to be a parable. It's meant to be this huge allegory, teaching us a deeper meaning through some <laughs> incredibly weird and strange and even funny language. 
So uh, Walter Brueggemann says, it is an artistic, imaginative creation designed to carry a message. The date, 6th, 5th, 4th century BCE. Who knows? Nobody really knows the date of this piece. And the author, nobody knows that either. Take your pick with that one as well. Now for some background about the, the time that, that uh, Jonah is talking about when he's going to Nineveh, this would have been around, this would have been um, when the Assyrians were in control. They were oppressors and captives of the Israelite people. Nineveh was their capital city. They uh, conquered the area of Israel and Judah around 720 BCE. They conquered the northern kingdom, which was Judah. I mean, Israel, I'm sorry. But they didn't conquer the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was kind of like, kind of left to their own devices, but they had to kind of toe a line, pay taxes, that kind of thing. But the northern kingdom of Israel, they actually physically took. This is where uh, there's a term, that the, uh, an idea, a theological idea of the lost ten tribes of Israel. This is where that comes from. Because once Assyria took a hold of this northern kingdom of Israel, those ten tribes are gone from history. They are dispersed. So this southern tribe of Judah is still there. Next slide, please. What's the deal with Nineveh? God calls it a great city and that it is wicked. One thing to know about Nineveh, it is in modern-day Iraq, around the area of Mosul. Again, it was the capital of Assyria. Nineveh was a big deal. Testing, good. Awesome, thank you. <clears throat> I did some research into the archaeological finds from this area, from this era, and there is evidence that these people, the Assyrians, were absolute monsters. Um, some of the descriptions of what they have found, I can't even say in this room. I don't know of if anyone has seen Game of Thrones. If you have, this is Game of Thrones level of terror. For those of you that have seen Game of Thrones also, I need you to think of the House of Bolton. And if you don't know what that is, I'll tell you afterwards. But it was bad. It was bad. These were not nice people. These were scary people who showed no mercy. In the Jonah movie with VeggieTales, they are described as fish slappers. They would just slap you in the face with a fish. 
That's how they were described as being wicked and evil. There's other ways that, um, that, that's it, Dina. You can take that down if you want to. The story of Jonah being called as a prophet is different from other prophets as well. There is a theological idea called a, uh, a prophetic call or a divine calling. And for the people in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, there is this call, there is the resistance to the call, there may be a little bit of some turmoil or some kind of come-to-Jesus moment, and then that prophet says, okay, Lord, here I am. I'll do whatever you need me to do. With Moses, God calls him, and Moses is like, you are crazy. I am not doing that. Get my brother, because it ain't me. But then Moses eventually acquiesces. It's the same thing with Elijah, and it's the same thing with Jeremiah. Jonah's prophetic call, his divine calling, is different from other prophets and the fact that he runs from it and stays running from it. He actually is willfully disobedient to what God is calling him to do. There's a book called The Chapters of Rabbi Eliezer, dated from the 8th or 9th century CE, Common Era. In this book, Rabbi Eliezer relays that Jonah fled from the call to preach in Nineveh because he had obeyed an earlier command to proclaim the same message to Jerusalem. Instead of destroying the city, God was merciful and he relented. God's reputation was sullied and the people began to think of him as a lying prophet. According to this Midrash, Jonah fled because he didn't want a repeat of that incident. Phyllis Tribble says that Jonah would have known that, quote, Yahweh's power and presence in Nineveh would absolutely happen, which is what Corey was saying a minute ago. Jonah rejects this call because he does not want the Ninevites to experience God's mercy. Tribble goes on to say Jonah's objection is the certain knowledge that doom for Nineveh can be averted because he knows God repents of evil. Whereas some prophets shrank, shrank from their divine calling because they saw no hope, Jonah refuses because he knows there is hope. Jonah is protesting the love of God. Will you let that statement just fall on your ears a little bit deeper? This is not my word. These are not my words. They're Phyllis Tribble. Jonah is protesting the love of God. Now, can we talk real for just a moment? What I'm about to talk about won't apply to all of you, but it'll apply to some because it applies to me. Or maybe I'm the only one. That's very possible, too. Aren't there some people, certain people, on another level of bad people, that we have a hard time seeing them get mercy? Am I the only one? Maybe I mean, the spiritual abusers, the manipulators, the pedophile, the rapist, the murderer, the violent, the merciless. Maybe it's not even that deep. Maybe it's just someone who did us wrong and they never apologized. They just skipped off into the sunset like they didn't just decimate you. They're not evil, they're just human. And yet we remain hurt, feeling betrayed, 
we're wounded by someone who never even acknowledged how deeply they hurt us and don't seem to care about the negative effects it's had on us. They go on and flourish in their life, and that can sting. And it really stings for those of us that are self-righteous. And I say that because I can excel in self-righteousness. It's something I've always struggled with. I grew up believing there was a right way to experience God. There was a right way to obey God. There were boundaries and there were lines and you didn't listen to this kind of music and you didn't get in the back seat of the car with your boyfriend. There were things you didn't do and there were things that you did do and there were lines. And I'm a rule follower. And I married someone who doesn't know a rule if it slapped him in the face. Drives me nuts. So when I was younger, I followed those rules. I did it right. And I saw people around me who did everything wrong, and they still prospered. And that was hard for me. Because I am at best, or not, I'm at my worst, very self-righteous. There are not many biblical characters who really resonate with me. But Jonah absolutely does. Jonah is not only called to foreign territory, I'm sorry, foreign territory, but enemy territory to tell them that Yahweh loves them as much as God loves them. Jonah is God's chosen. His people are God's chosen. Not them, not the other. These people are Jonah's oppressors. These people are not the good guys in the story. Robert Alter says that to send a Hebrew prophet to Nineveh would be rather like sending a Jewish speaker to deliver moral exhortations to the Germans in Berlin in 1936. If you and I, if you or I were Jonah, we would probably want to see Assyria fall. We wouldn't want to see them repent and turn and find the love of God. But God tells Jonah to go do it anyway. To go to those people and call them to repentance. And Jonah promptly skips bail and is on the lamb. The next slide, please. This is how far Jonah is willing to go, not only to get away from Nineveh, but especially Yahweh. So he's in Joppa. Nineveh's 550 miles He's willing to go <laughs> over 3,000 miles to get away from God, to get away from Nineveh. Jonah was running from the presence of the Lord, it says. Pastor Josh Scott says that this was a normal understanding of how things worked in the ancient world. Deities were associated with places, and when you left that particular place and traveled into another territory, that might belong to a different God. Jonah's plan is to leave the boundaries of his God, and by doing so, avoid any repercussions that his failure to comply might generate. 
He was in for a surprise. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Tribble says that we miss the underlying context of this sentence because none of us really understand ancient Hebrew. But this sentence carries with it a menacing force. She says, Yahweh strikes back. For those of you Star Wars fans like me, I thought that was kind of cute. Yahweh strikes back. Verses 3 and 4 harden the opposition between the characters. Yahweh and Jonah have entered a power struggle. In that struggle, the innocent sailors become victims. <laughs> I looked at multiple translations of this verse 4, and none of them capture that kind of violence, a menacing force. The idea that God is chasing this boy down, the kraken has been released. So the soldiers were afraid, and they start crying out to their God. There's this horrible storm, and nothing's working, and they don't know what to do. And Jonah's sleeping. He's sleeping in the middle of this horrible, horrific storm. How many of you can sleep through anything? Okay. All right. Okay. How many of you wake up because a spider is making a web in a room toward two doors down from you? Right? Something that this Hebrew writer wanted to communicate to us is that Jonah just kept going down. This sleep that the biblical text is describing is better translated, deep sleep, even a trance that precedes death. Jonah's going down. Altar says, first Jonah goes down to Jaffa, then down into the ship, then down into a deep sleep, so deep that he's not even far from dead. His trajectory is a series of goings down as he is cast into the sea and then into the belly of a fish. Jonah has increasingly separated himself from life. Phyllis Tribble says, soon he will propose his own demise, and much later he will demand death. Jonah resonates with me. I don't know if Jonah is a historical figure. There is a verse in 1 Kings that mentions Jonah, and it kind of sounds like our guy but I don't know for sure. But the point of Jonah is not about history. The point of Jonah is not whether he existed as was a real person or not. The point of Jonah is not to be historically accurate. It's designed to teach, to hold a mirror up to ourselves. I think it's a way to hold that mirror up to ourselves like it has for me over the past few weeks. And ask myself, is this me? Am I like Jonah? Have I been like Jonah? The story of Jonah invites us to imagine. I imagine Jonah as a joyless human. I imagine Jonah as an Enneagram 4. Yeah, me too, Mandy. I imagine Jonah is clinically depressed. And I imagine him this way because when I'm fighting my depression during a really hard season, 
this is how I behave. I run. I don't want to be around anyone. I don't want to be at church. I don't want to spend time with my family. I cocoon in my bedroom watching trash TV or reading trashy novels. And let me just say there ain't nothing wrong with either of those things. I'm just saying that's what I do. I clam up. I don't want to talk to anyone. And I go down, down, down. We're going to explore this a little bit further as we get through, go through these next three weeks. And maybe, con- and maybe conjecture why Jonah was so joyless. I have a theory. I've always been taught that the moral of Jonah is you can't run from God. God expects obedience from us. And if we're not obedient, we will be punished. God will hunt us down until we submit and do what he originally told us to do. I don't see Jonah that way anymore. I believe this story teaches us a lot of other things. And I hope along the way we get some nuggets that may be a little bit different from what we've always thought of Jonah. But most of all, I believe that the story of Jonah is a reminder that God pursues. God pursues. Not because he's mad, but because God loves. God loves. God runs after us, not to punish us, not not to strike something down on us, but to but yelling at us, saying, I love you. Why are you running? You are safe with me. You are the apple of my eye, and you make me happy. Just like the prodigal son's father, God runs after us because God loves God. Loves.